I invite you now to stand with me and take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm chapter uh, 89 as we will begin a four-week series here in Psalms of the Messiah. These are psalms that help us to see Jesus here during this Christmas time. Uh, This is a rather long psalm. Uh, And so uh, I am going to 52 verses. And so for the sake of time this morning, I am just going to read here the first four. This is the word of the Lord. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time that we have been together this morning in worship for the many things that we have done. Singing praise to your name being reminded as we light the third candle of the Advent wreath of the great joy that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And to hear from a man who feels called of God to aspire to the office of overseer in our church. Help us, God, to see all of these things this morning as worship, as community, as what we do together as the body of Christ here in this place called Nansman River Baptist Church. And now as we turn, God, to your word, would you show us Jesus? Help us to see how all of your word points towards the end of the story, the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to earth so that we might have life in him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One of the things our family finds ourselves doing this time of year is rewatching the same movies that we watched this time of year last year. I personally don't think any Christmas movie made after probably 1989 is any good. Sorry for the elf fans in the room. That's the worst movie to ever be made. Amen. It's just terrible. Why would you want to watch that? Pretty much Christmas Vacation was the last definitive Christmas movie, and I'll split the church over that fact. <laughs> well, we rewatch these movies like we've never seen them before. But you have, and you've watched them over and over to the point, if you're like us, where, where you can say the words even before they're said on the screen. Because we just know them so well. And once you know a movie like that so well, once you know what's going to happen in it, you start to watch it differently, don't you? Because you, you know what's coming, you can anticipate the end, and not just with Christmas movies, but just with some of our favorite movies in general. Once you've watched a movie, particularly one that has a surprise ending, there's, there's almost no way to go back and watch it a second time without, no, without watching it with fresh eyes with the end in mind as we kind of go back through and relive those moments that we had relived once, twice, a hundred times before. 
Psalm 89 is kind of like one of those old movies that you've seen over and over again. It is a common story told time and again, both in the Psalms in poetic form and in the narrative of the Old Testament. It is a cry to God. It is a prayer at times, both of the Lord's faithfulness, how he will respond to his people's cry for help, but also a lament where the people of God in this specific moment feel as if they have been abandoned by God, that God no longer hears for, from them. It is impossible for us to view Messianic literature like this psalm without the fulfillment of it in mind, just as it is impossible for us to rewatch an old movie that we have seen time and again without knowing what is going to happen. This psalm, particularly Psalm 89, prepares us for the Messianic promise of Jesus by telling the story really in reverse. If we were to have read the whole psalm at the beginning, again, just for the sake of time, could not read all of those verses, but it starts very joyful. And the psalm ends abruptly and with cries of lament over the fact that the people of God feel like God has abandoned them. But since we, New Testament Christians, know the end of the story, we know how God will hear their cry. We know how God will answer generations later by sending his son to die in our place so that we might find life. Because we know that, we read this psalm differently. And so we are going to read it differently today. The way we're going to approach this psalm is from the end to the beginning. Now, those who may be new with us, this is the way we approach Scripture here. Uh, typically, is I preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We finished 2 Thessalonians last week, and we take breaks in the Psalms. And normally, when we take a break in the Psalms, we'll pick one Psalm, and we'll preach it from beginning to end. What I'm going to do here is preach it from end to beginning, because we know what God is going to do. We know how God has kept this promise, and I want us to begin with at the lowest point, which is at the end, and work our way to the high point of Jesus. So let's look first at verses 38 through 52, which show us the Lord's silence during times of trouble. We begin by seeing what we do, how we cry out to the Lord when it seems the Lord has abandoned his promises. Start in verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all the walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back to the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Then verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which you faithfully, by which your faithfulness you swore to David? 
It is the promises of God made to the Davidic line that are in view here. So when we read over and over about the you in this passage, the you in this passage is David symbolically because this passage, this, this uh, psalm was written after David's death, likely uh, significantly after David's death. And it is looking back on the promise of God to what this line of David symbolized for the people of God. That it was the promise of God to establish the throne of David forever that the people of God were holding on to and viewing as the presence of God in their midst. And what is affirmed here in these verses is that the providence of God is still at place. Notice what happens over and over. that They are placing the responsibility on God. That God has the opportunity to keep his promise, that God has the opportunity to be faithful, that God has the opportunity to change the course of what is happening. But it seems as if God is no longer doing so. God's promises can seem that way in specific moments in time. Now, Old Testament scholars can't tell us exactly when this psalm was written, like most psalms. We don't know exactly when they were written. There are some that we know better than others because of some textual clues within the psalm. It's most likely that this psalm was written either during a time of great turmoil in Israel or early even in the exile of Israel. That this is a cry of lament from the people of God as they look at the ruin of their nation and see no way in which the line of David as the king of Israel could continue. It seems as if in that very moment that God had abandoned his promises to them. And we too, in, in specific moments in our lives, may look around and think, man, has God abandoned me? We may ask the same kind of questions that are being asked here that we read in verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Lord, do you, do you know what is happening in our world? Do you, Lord, do you know what is happening in my life? Lord, are you going to be faithful? This is the ultimate question that the people of God cry out to him because in that moment, it seemed as if to them, God had abandoned his promise to the line of David. That central idea that was so important to the people of God. And we may, we may read a passage like this and think, oh, they shouldn't sing of God like that. They shouldn't talk of God like that. They shouldn't ask that question of God. Don't they know God is faithful? Don't they know God will keep his promises? Why is this even in the Psalms? Well, it's actually in the Psalms a lot. There are, there are numerous psalms throughout the 150 that make up the, the, the four books of the Psalter that, that say, like Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And if the psalmist can cry out these things, church family, can, can I give you permission to, to feel okay in times of life where you're in these kind of moments to, to cry out these same words of the psalmist to the Lord? Israel's not wrong for asking this question. 
If they were wrong for asking the question, the Lord wouldn't have included it in his holy scriptures for us. It is okay in these moments that Israel finds itself in there and that you may find yourself in in life to cry out to the Lord and say, oh Lord, have you forgotten me? But we also see in this section of this psalm that there are times when it seems the Lord has not just abandoned his promise, but has abandoned his people altogether. Look back in verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is? This is that specific generation speaking. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? In the verses 50 and 51, remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insult of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Now the attention of the psalmist turns corporate. It turns towards the... Uh, the brevity of life of this specific generation that feels as if the promises of God have been abandoned, feels as if they, the people of God, have been abandoned, and they cry out to him, how long, O oh Lord, will we see a return to your faithfulness? Or will your servants continue to be mocked in this time? By seeming to abandon his promise to David, the Lord seems to have abandoned, from their perspective, his promise to his people. It, is, it most often feels like the Lord has abandoned his people when the wicked prosper. This is another theme of the Psalms, that multiple Psalms cry out to God as it seems it is the wicked who prosper and not the righteousness. They're not the righteous. Psalm 94 is an example of this. Where we read, O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O oh Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Psalm 94 is a psalm about God not abandoning his people, but in it we see the fact that the people particularly feel that way when the wicked around them prosper, just as it is in Psalm 89. They look around and they see those who are pressing in on them as the people of God, and it feels as if God is blessing the, those outside the camp, not inside. And so the end of this story is really the beginning. The end of this psalm is really telling us of the current position of God's people, crying out to him during a time either of exile, of exile of, or of great torment from nations around, feeling as if God has abandoned them. And maybe you feel that way today. Maybe in your heart you look around and think, is God listening to me? Is God listening to us? Is God still faithful? My encouragement to you would be this. Yes, absolutely, he is. Now quickly, just a note, because we like to deal with all of the verses. Some of you say, wait, you stopped at 51, there's 52. Verse 52 is most likely an editor's edition to close out the third book of the Psalms. And the psalmist 
the, the, the original psalm very likely ended with verse 51, intending to leave us in this specific moment of despair. But remember, we are working backwards. So this really is the beginning. It's the moment that the people find themselves in. But the middle section of this psalm is dedicated to the people proclaiming the Lord's faithfulness, where they recognize the Lord is faithful to keep his covenant. Look in verses 19 through 25. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with whom my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall be his horn, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand, uh, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the river. A primary theme of the Psalms, just as we have seen where the people of God feel abandoned, another primary theme of the Psalms is those same people proclaiming the faithfulness of the Lord. Listen, we should proclaim the faithfulness of the Lord at all times. But it is one thing to proclaim the faithfulness of the Lord when it feels like, when our, not just our knowledge, but, but actually the way we feel seems as if God is faithful. And you've likely been there, where, where it seems like everything around you is going well. Things, things are going well for you in your life. Things are going well for our faith community. And we feel like it seems we have clear evidence in front of us of the faithfulness of the Lord. We should declare the faithfulness of the Lord in those moments. But it is a whole nother thing to declare the faithfulness of the Lord when everything seems to be falling apart. And remember, this is the moment that the people of God here in Psalm 89 find themselves in. It feels like in that moment in time that God had abandoned them, that all had fallen apart, and yet they spend the middle section of this psalm specifically declaring the faithfulness of the Lord to keep his covenant. And so they look back. That's why verse 19 says, of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one. That, that this is talking about the time where God has, has looked back and or the, the people of God are looking back on the time where God has said, David will be my king of my, my earthly king of my people and his line shall remain forever. It is this covenant years later, decades, possibly centuries later, that the people are looking back on. And reminding themselves, even in this dark moment, that God is the one that even in, maybe especially in moments of despair, should the people of God remind one another of the great faithfulness of the Lord. And that's what this middle section of the psalm is intended to do. It's intended to remind people in the, the darkest moments of their life, God is faithful. He will keep his covenant. But it's not just this ambiguous idea. Oh, God's faithful. 
It's not just this cliche of, of a saying that we pat one another on the back when, when we encounter a brother or sister in Christ who is not doing well and, and say, well, you know, God, God's faithful. There is, there is a specific fulfillment of the covenant of God that the people have in mind. They don't just know the Lord is faithful. They believe the Lord will not just keep his covenant, but will ultimately fulfill it in a way that they can't even fully see yet. Now, here's the hint. We've watched the movie already. We know how the Lord is going to do this, but listen to the words of the psalmist. This is what the people are holding on to, looking forward to the time that God will do it. Look in verses 26 through 29. He shall cry out to me. You are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. This is how God will keep his word. This is how God will keep his covenant. This is the how of the fulfillment. Written at least several hundred years before Jesus, the psalmist looks to one who will call God father, who God will call his firstborn, who God will make the highest king on the earth, his throne is the one that, be, that will be established forever. These words are not talking about an earthly king. These words are talking about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. These words are pointing towards Jesus who fulfills the covenant of God to his people. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight. We get to look back through Jesus on this psalm and see how he fulfills the covenant of God. But imagine yourself as one of these people at one of the lowest moments in Israel's history. Reminding one another of the faithfulness of the Lord and looking forward to how he will fulfill that promise. They didn't know who Jesus would be. If they did, they would have been waiting for him. There, there, were, there was no one there in that stable in Bethlehem waiting for Jesus to, to be born. There were but a select few who had been promised of God that they would see the Messiah born. And so there were a select few, but the masses missed it. And yet generations before knew that one would come who would be different than all other, knew that one would come who would be the son of God, knew that one would come who would be established as the highest king over all creation, that this is how God would fulfill his covenant. And by fulfilling his covenant, the Lord would demonstrate his faithfulness to his covenant people. Those same people who feel as if in that moment they are in the lowest of lows, they know that God will ultimately be faithful to them, even if not in that generation. God's faithfulness will be made known to them because God will fulfill the covenant with which he has made. In verses 30 through 37, we read, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquities with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. 
I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Because God keeps his covenant, his people are not abandoned. Because God is faithful to do what he has promised, his people will not be abandoned. Even in moments where it feels as if God is far off like it was here for the Israelites, God is faithful to his covenant promise and the fulfillment would come. And church family, the fulfillment has come. But notice what, as God turns, because the psalmist turns to speak for God here. And as the psalmist turns to speak for God, one of the dominant themes in these verses is the theme of discipline. What happens when the children of God forsake the law of God? What happens when God's people fail to walk according to his holy order? And this is why the people of God feel abandoned by him. This is why they, if this is from exile, it's why they're in exile. If this is during a time uh, of, of great turmoil and war in their area, it is why the Old Testament reminds us uh, time and again that it was because of the sins of the people that God allowed wicked to come in and the, the nations of the world to overtake Israel. And what does God say here? God says, I will be faithful but my faithfulness will be marked by discipline. My, my faithfulness will, will be marked by me lovingly correcting my people. And this is what the faithfulness of God looks like. And we need to understand that even in our own lives, this is what God does for us. That the most faithful thing God can do in your life is to allow his discipline to work out the sin in your own life. That he is refining you and he is shaping you and he is molding you into the image of his son. He is the one who disciplines us by his steadfast love. He shows his faithfulness to us by correcting us. Ultimately, God establishes his people by keeping his promise to David. Then we back up to the beginning section of the psalm. And here's where this psalm begins. It begins with a clear promise that God will send his Messiah for his people. And that Messiah will have an everlasting throne. Look at those first four verses that we read at the beginning. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. This promise is known, is repeated over and over in the Psalms. It's known as the Davidic covenant. It looks back on 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where God promised to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
The psalm begins by looking at that promise of God. It begins with a messianic prophecy concerning the throne of David. This is how God shows his ultimate faithfulness to his people by sending Jesus to establish the throne of David forever. God was not just telling David what he wanted to hear. God was not just saying something that would ultimately pass away in a few generations or a few centuries even. God was making an everlasting covenant that would be fulfilled differently than people thought it would. Now, let's just understand the way people likely thought this would be fulfilled. Even up to the point of Jesus' day, there were those who were looking for an earthly king, an earthly Messiah, one who would come and rid Israel of her enemies, whoever those enemies were. If the enemies were the Babylonians, if the enemies were the Assyrians, if the enemies were the Greeks, if the enemies were the Romans, that's who they wanted. They wanted an earthly Messiah to establish the throne of David there in Jerusalem forever and rid Israel, the people of God, of her enemies. And what God does is something different. Does he keep his promise? Absolutely. Does he establish the throne of David forever? Yes. And you say, wait a second, there's not a throne of David in Jerusalem right now that a king in the line of David is sitting on. No, there's something better. There's a throne in heaven right now that someone in the line of David is sitting on forever. That's where Jesus is. And you say, wait, didn't the people want the Messiah to come and to rid the people of God from her enemies? Yes, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Listen, the greatest enemy the people of God have is not the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Greeks or the Romans or whoever, whatever other earthly enemy you think we have right now. The greatest enemy of the people of God is our sin. And Jesus rids us of our sin. Jesus, sitting on the established throne of David forever, has conquered our greatest enemy once and for all, never to come back. He has established that throne for us. He is the Messiah sitting on an everlasting throne. And because his, he is a Messiah sitting on an everlasting throne, he is a Messiah with an everlasting people. Listen to these last verses here, 15 through 18. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When, it wa when its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you created them. Tabor and uh, Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong in your hand, high your, uh, high your right hand. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, but your favor, our horn, is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. If we consider the end of this psalm, the beginning, that momentary affliction that the people of God are feeling, contrast that with what they are saying here. Contrast that in light of a fulfilled covenant of God in Jesus, the established people of God forever. The first several verses here of this section speak of the possession of God of all of the universe. You'll notice there's, it's the north and the south, it's the earth and the world, it's, it's the skies, it's the sea, it's everything. All of the nations belong to the Lord. He is the one who establishes the entire universe. And then what does it say at the end? Blessed are the people who know the festival shout. Blessed are your people. If all of this is true, then blessed are those who are your people, ultimately leading to verse, 48, or verse 18, where we see that he is the shield for his people. The God is the king, the Holy One of Israel, who protects his people forever. That when God has fulfilled his promise to his people in Jesus, he gathers us together like a hen does her chicks and keeps us safe no matter what rages around us. God has done this for us. So what? We praise the Lord for sending Jesus the Messiah while patiently waiting for his future return. Church family, we must recognize that we are in a between time. We can read this psalm in reverse, knowing the end from the beginning, because we know that Christ has come and fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, coming to us, sent from God, so that we might be made right with him. And yet there is still a time that the church of the New Testament feels like Israel of the Old Testament. It feels at times like God is delayed. It feels at times like the wicked are winning. And it feels like we need to cry out for the coming of the Messiah. But we can rest in the unrelenting promise of God that Jesus will return for her bride. This is what New Testament author James encourages us in towards the end of his writing to the New Testament church. He tells them, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We are encouraged be patient and to rely on the faithfulness of God just as the Old Testament people were encouraged to rely on the faithfulness of God and to remind one another of it. Because we live in a time where we can look back and see that Jesus has come. 
And yet we still look forward to a day where he will come again. This is what Advent does for us. This is what the Christmas season reminds us as we come to these Sundays before Christmas and worship God and light candles and read scripture. We recognize this in-between time that we live in. Knowing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things and yet still waiting for his return. Knowing that a day will come where we look back on both of the comings of Jesus. Never feeling as if God has abandoned us, never feeling as if God is distant, never feeling as if the wicked are winning. And we long for that day. It is why as a Christmas song, we sing what we sang this morning. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the son of God appears. Rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. (laughs) That's not just talking about the first coming of Jesus. It is the people of God now in this in-between time, looking forward during this season of Advent on the second coming of our Messiah, which let me promise you, is just as sure and true as his first. It may feel as if he has tarried. It may feel as if two millennia is a very long time, but God is faithful. So friend, let me ask you this today. If the Messiah were to return today, would you be ready for that? If Jesus were to return today, and I don't, if, if maybe you've been in churches that ask that question. I don't ask that question all the time, but I'm preaching on the coming Messiah. So I want to ask it in the context of the sermon that I'm preaching. If Jesus were to return today, would you be ready for that? You say, well, how do I get ready for it? Is there something I'm supposed to do? Is there something I'm supposed to say? No, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. It's about what you believe. Do you believe that Jesus came the first time? Because those who are ready for Jesus to come the second time have believed that Jesus came the first time and didn't just come to be a good teacher, didn't just come to show us some good things about how to treat one another, but came to defeat our greatest enemy, our own sin, so that we might have access to God through Jesus, the Messiah. If you've not done that, would you do so today? Just put your faith in Jesus, call on the name of the Lord and be saved today. And church family, for those who have done that, what we do is we sit in this in-between time, resting assured in the first coming of Jesus as we long and worship him, waiting for the second. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, that we can look back and see your fulfillment to Israel, your fulfillment to David, the promised Messiah personified in Jesus who defeats sin and death in our place so that we might live. Help us to hold fast and firm to that truth today, we pray. Let this be a reality for us as we await the second coming, just as sure as the first. Let us praise you for your love and your faithfulness to us even here in this meantime. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.